Welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Laura Shin, host of the Unchained podcast. We will discuss her new book, The Cryptopians, Idealism, Greed, Lies, and the Making of the First Big Cryptocurrency Craze, which is published by Public Affairs. So welcome to the show, Laura. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I'm really glad you came on. Um, I love this book. I really enjoyed reading it. It's a crazy story that you tell so compellingly. Um, and I, I, I love it. I'm so glad you made time to, to come on the show and talk about it with me. Thank you. Today. I am just so pleased that you read it and loved it. Yeah. Well, so for listeners who may not already be familiar with the book or know anything about your work and your podcast, I wonder if you could tell people a little bit about yourself, sort of what were you doing when you first started getting interested in this particular story and sort of what what made you think that this was uh, something worth pursuing? Well, uh, it was in 2015 that I first came, or not first, but that I really started covering this in earnest. And at that point, I'd been a journalist for um, I'm not sure, maybe like roughly 18 years or so. Um, And I had been covering personal finance at that point for maybe, I forget, like four years or or no, I guess was... Well, anyway, I, <laughs> all I can say is it was, it was some number of years and I you know, kind of felt like I sort of knew the material and it's not really a subject that changes a lot. So, you know, it was getting to the point where I was feeling like, okay, well, I could write another article on the same topic using different words, but that's completely not interesting to me. <laughs> and I kind of, you know, really wanted to do something new. And so my Forbes editors said, hey, we have this idea to do a Forbes FinTech 50 list do you want to head it up? And another reporter and I headed up the list and we just divided it into categories. And I took the category of digital currencies and just became completely obsessed basically from that point. And I remember because I'd had this other idea for a book for actually a long time and I still want to do it at some point, but I had planned this kind of like work vacation where it was sort of like a writer's retreat and it was just me on this island and I was going to work on this other book. And instead I spent the whole week trying to learn more about Bitcoin. <laughs> so then, um, you know, finally, and, and, and I started begging my editors at Forbes, like, I just want to cover this and nothing else. But yeah, they finally acquiesced to that in 2017 because that was the year that the initial coin offering craze happened. And it was very clear that crypto was really picking up steam in a big way. And a lot of uh, there was a lot more interest than there had been. And a year before then, actually, I'd started the podcast. Uh, and that was um, because Forbes was starting this series of podcasts. And I found out about them. And I think they'd like already launched. But again, I begged my editor. I was like, please, please, please let me start a podcast about blockchain technology. And um, hilariously, I became the 13th uh, Forbes podcast because they had initially launched with 12. And I think mine is the only one that's still going. <laughs> um, so yeah, eventually in 
2018, I left Forbes and was um, it, like basically what happened was I owned the podcast because I'd actually started it as a freelancer. And so in 2017, even though I was, I was full time there, um, the downloads were just getting to a point where um, somebody who was doing some work for me pointed out that like the amount I could bring in from advertising revenue was a certain amount that I realized like, oh, that's that's more than I make at my full-time job. <laughs> um, and I'd had this idea to do a book about crypto. And so I thought, okay, well, if I can make uh, even more money than I was making at my full-time job doing you know, work that will take me like two days a week or whatever the number is, like I might as well just do that and then use the remaining time to work on my book. So that's what I've been doing the last four years. And yeah, now the book is coming out next month and I'm uh, honestly, so excited for people like you to read it. And that, again, like I said, I'm just so pleased that you enjoyed it. Well, so reading the book, it was very clear to me that a lot of it reflected deep experience reporting on these stories while they were happening, like in the moment, right? Uh, I wonder if you could talk a little bit as well about the reporting you did or sort of what you did as you decided to shift into kind of focusing on writing a book full time. In other words, sort of like, what was the, you know, what was that transition like? And how did you sort of pursue the research process for putting the book together? You know, actually, you might be surprised to hear this, but actually, no, I did not do that much reporting at the time that all this was happening. In fact, so much of the book is stuff that I learned only through doing the book. When I, let's just put it this way. The book proposal looks nothing like the actual book. <laughs> um, there were certain things I had like an inkling of. Um, you know, you'll probably remember that in toward the end of the book, there's a moment where I had made a query that caused one of the characters to do something. Um, but you know, like, you know, what you, what I didn't say was that even though I had gotten that tip, I only just got a sliver. And, you know, I, I never, as you'll, you know, as you know, from the book, I, I didn't end up writing anything on it because I could not get confirmation. So at that moment, I just had such a limited view into what was actually happening. Um, and so it was, yes, only through talking to all these people years later that I was able to get all this information. And really, I just knew almost none of what actually ended up be being put in the book because I mean, as you know, I mean, there were just so many crazy things that happened. And frankly, there's going to be so much news to the crypto community because there's so much in this book that just hasn't been known before. And yes, when I started reporting it, I did not even know, like, probably, I don't know, like 70% of the stuff that's in the book. Oh, wow. Well, then talk about the research process because I mean, the amount of detail in the book is incredible. Like, you know, like really, really rich picture of the development of the Ethereum currency and the sort of crypto landscape surrounding it, as it were. Like, what was your process of, of researching and putting the book together then? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I almost feel like I need to teach a class to journalists about this, but essentially, I mean, a lot of it was just very obsessive trolling on the internet, um, you know, just going through the internet way back uh, machine uh, to just see like, what did this webpage look like on this day versus on that day versus on that day? Um, you know, I interviewed more than 200 people for the book. And frankly, I mean, they, you know, um, at the very end, I have like credits 
or acknowledgements. And actually there, cause you know, you have this like not quite final version. I even think I changed it once more before the final went to print to just like really emphasize how much gratitude I have for my sources, because they're really the ones who, you know, they sent me documents, they sent me recordings, they sent me uh, private messages, they sent me emails, they sent me photos, videos. I mean, it was just like, it was really because of their generosity that I was able to and do things like even I remember that um because there's this early moment that is very well known where Ethereum kind of got started at um, Bitcoin Miami uh, in 2014. And I kept asking people for descriptions of that house. And there were, you know, like 15 or 20 people staying in this house. And I just never felt like I was getting a good description. And also like people had described it as a mansion and all these things. Anyway, eventually, thankfully, I did get like the Airbnb listing so I could see, okay, clearly it was not a mansion, but also people sent me videos. And so I was able to like be able to then describe what the room looked like and kind of just like, um, you know, even outside the back porch, like when people would go and have conversations out there, like what were they looking at? What was, what were they seeing? Like, what did it feel like, you know, just in the air or like, what was the weather like at that time? Like I even was like trolling on these weather pages, like historical weather pages for what was the weather on this date in Zug, Switzerland, or what was the weather on this date in Miami or, you know, whatever, um, all that kind of thing. And yeah, I mean, I had this, like there, there's like this great timeline software called Aeon Timeline. And I was like just putting so many things in the timeline. And especially when it gets into the DAO, which is this huge event in Ethereum's history, I literally was, it was like a minute to minute, like what was happening. And because, you know, for instance, block explorers or like other, you know, like other kinds of websites where you get blockchain data or or even like Reddit or whatever, they all have different ways of showing what the time was. So I literally had to email all these companies and be like, am I looking at my time zone or is this like UTC? Because they don't they don't even say sometimes it's just a time, but it doesn't say what time zone it is. So then I like have to figure out what time zone it is. And then like sometimes, you know, obviously it's like some pe- places have daylight savings and some don't. And so like literally I was like <laughs> having to figure out, you know, which of these events happened first in order to tell this chronological story. So yeah, my timeline was like invaluable. And it's just so funny because, you know, the timeline, it's like you can kind of move through it quickly. And then when it gets to the DAO, it's literally you can only move vertically because there are so many events on one single day. And it just keeps going like that for like a few months where it's like just packed. And and so you're just like going down, 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 down. And you can't even like scroll horizontally really for a long time because it's just like event after event after event after event. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's how I did it. And The other thing I want to add is like, because this is a decentralized community where, you know, there were eight Ethereum co-founders and then like some got kicked out and like new leadership got brought in and then like those leaders left and then new leadership got. So, I mean, it's just like there were so many events where there are like multiple people. And so when you had somebody saying like, oh, at this event, some, you know, so-and-so said such and such, then I would have to go around and like check with everybody else to, you know, check. And like, I remember there were these two people there. Um, they kind of are very close to each other. And they kept insisting that this one person had been at this one meeting and said this one thing. I checked with that person and they were like, oh no, I was moving across the country. I wasn't in Switzerland at that time. And, you know, but these two people were certain that this happened then. And I was like, no, it didn't because he, you know, he can show me that he 
was in the United States. So, um, you know, but it, it just took a lot of that. Like anytime anybody said something, I'd have to check with that person or ask the other people, like, did they say it that way or, you know, whatever. And so it just was, wow. I, um, you're right. There was so much information and it was a beast to get under control, but you know, technology provides really good tools for that. So that's what I relied on. Yeah. Well, one of the things that really made the book a fun read was all of these incredible characters who populate it and your really vivid kind of descriptions of who they were and how they thought and how they talked and their relationships among each other. One kind of key figure is the kind of creator, I guess, of Ethereum. For, for listeners who may not be so familiar with the story, could you talk a little about, about him, who he was, and sort of where this entire starting story got started? Yeah. So Vitalik Buterin is the creator of Ethereum. And what I find to be kind of maybe a parallel story that takes place in the book is really kind of his coming of age, frankly, because when he starts the book, he's 19. Or actually, well, so yeah, I started I started the book with him at 19 when he was initially coming up with the idea of Ethereum. But then I do go back to like his childhood just to kind of fill people in on who he was and stuff like that. But he was just kind of getting into Bitcoin and he kind of, you know, was, you know, he had some computer science background was, you know, had done a little bit in college here and there. And he was realizing, oh, so Bitcoin is built for payments. And when people are building these new blockchains, they were just adding new features. And he kept thinking, well, okay, so if you do that, then the second somebody else creates a new blockchain with additional features, then you know people are just going to want to use that one, not yours. <laughs> and um, he was wondering, like, why can't it be more like an app store where developers can create whatever they want and they can upload whatever they want and it will be like a decentralized application, you know, like Bitcoin is decentralized. And so what he designed Ethereum to be was built more around this programming language. And the programming language is what enables you to build these smart contracts that enable the decentralized applications where basically you write the contract and then it kind of just lives on its own and you don't have to be like managing it or making details around it. And in fact, you kind of really can't unless you, and this happens now in crypto where people build these like for instance, like a DeFi application. And once they upgrade it, they literally have to get people to migrate to it. And some people, you know, will still keep their money in the old one or whatever. So it just, um, it's, you know, it's decentralized. It's not something that you can control after you upload it. And so that's uh, how he created Ethereum, designed that way. And yeah, over the course of the book, what's interesting is, you know, he had this idea for this technology, but really, you know, his growth as a character came from the very human problems that he faced because, you know, by that point, Bitcoin was enough of a success that a lot of people understood that if they were to kind of get in early on Ethereum, they could become the Ethereum equivalent of what was then a well-known phenomenon, which is called the Bitcoin millionaire. And so there were a lot of people who, you know, they definitely had their eyes on kind of the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, I guess you could say, especially since Ethereum is very associated with rainbows. And they definitely, you know, had... Um, you know, I wouldn't say like necessarily bad intentions, but just self-motivated, uh, self-serving uh, in intentions. And, you know, Vitalik is himself a very kind of pure person and he doesn't, uh, he's very idealistic and he, you know, 
he's just not kind of that kind of greedy um, person. And so because of his particular personality, it really took him, I think, a while to understand that people could be like that. And so, yeah, you see by the end of the book, he's kind of wised up a little bit. And it really is, frankly, not only about Ethereum's massive development over that period, but also about his own personal growth. Mm. Well, so what was that process of development like? Like from the initial concept through the building stage to actually like having a product that that people could could actually use. Like how long did that take and how did how did it happen in practice? Because I, I gotta say, you know, as somebody coming from a more kind of conventional legal background advising more conventional companies, some of the scenarios you describe in this book are a little bit uh distressing. Uh, I I wonder how you, as someone who also has a background reporting on kind of finance and whatnot, sort of reacted to kind of telling this story about this kind of developing company, companies, assortment of companies. I don't know exactly how to describe it. So overall, between Vitalik's inception and launch, it was about uh, roughly, I think, a year and eight months or something all told. And um, the development was in multiple phases. So uh, at first he published a white paper and then people kind of got interested and they were like, oh, we, we will want to join in. And so um, the first time that he p- spoke about it publicly was at this North American Bitcoin conference in Miami. And uh, that was where you know people gathered in this Miami house, and they all said, "Hey, we'll we'll join. We'll be co-founders, whatever." And so then um, the next thing really was to do a crowd sale to raise the funds that they would need to do that development work. And so that initial Ethereum founding crew was focused on that, and they basically did that from the end of January until the crowd sale launch in, uh, I think it was July 22nd of 2014. And so um, those people were kind of like really more administrative in terms of like getting all the regulatory things underway. And in fact, I mean, when they did the crowd sale, you know, the legal stuff really wasn't settled, but they just kind of like were able to get this law firm to sign off on it and be like, we think it's legal and, you know, stuff like that. And so, you know, that's what they did. And, and, they, um, it just had to do other things like in Switzerland in order to say like, we're this entity in Switzerland that's doing this. Um, but then once they had the money, um, you know, they entered through this development period where they were hiring all these different developers. And this is now when it's kind of, it's like all of a sudden this new crew of people that we see enter the book and, um, you know, at that point, so one one of the core tensions that had existed from the start was like between the business guys and the developers. And so what's fascinating is after the sale, it really was like the business guys were gone and it was really about the developers and they were in control. And um, you see this theme kind of about the business guys versus developers come up over and over again in the book. But essentially at that point, you know, the developers like did what they could to try to launch this, but they faced... Uh, a lot of financial uncertainty, I guess we could put it. Um, I don't want to give too many spoilers, but let's just say that things were looking pretty dicey for them and they kind of barely managed to launch by the skin of their teeth. Um, but that launch, yes, happened in on July 30th, 2015. So a, a lot of the like, well, a lot of the book in general, but especially the sort of the, a lot of the story that you 
were just recounting, I felt like there was a lot of it was a story of this kind of personal tensions among different people with different visions about what Ethereum and the Ethereum Foundation and that ecosystem were, were going to look like. And also on some level, a kind of a story of efforts to establish some sort of quasi-corporate governance in ways that, again, you know, from some, for someone from a more traditional background, we're, we're kind of distressing to see um, the problems that arose and, and why they arose and, you know, how those created potential issues for the future of the organization. I, I guess if you, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. And also, I kind of wonder, I mean, to what extent do you think that those were sort of part and parcel of the fundamental nature of the project and unavoidable? Or were some of those things that maybe could have potentially been avoided or mitigated to some degree? Well, my personal view is that, and a lot of people in Ethereum say this uh, toward the end of the book, and I know the version you had doesn't have the epilogue. So just trying to remember if so some of what I'm about to say may just may not have been in your version. Um, but there are definitely people in Ethereum who feel that um, this kind of disorganized quality and this like lack of interest in good management really just stems from Victolic himself. And they, you know, kind of, I think we're quite frustrated about that. And I think it's, you know, they would say things like, Oh, like he disdains management and, and like business people in general, you know, and, and Vitalik himself would kind of admit that. And so, um, some of it, frankly, really just stems from the fact that he's not interested in that. He kind of wants something like truly decentralized, more community focused and more from the ground up. But there are other people who kind of feel like, well, you can have that, but also still be organized at the top. And I, you know, I feel like they, they don't feel like their point gets through to him. But the the fact of the matter is, you know, and this goes back again to his personality, because of that kind of like purity and innocence in his motivations that he has, I think it makes him unable to, or not, well, I think now he's like much better at this, but I think especially for a long time, it made it harder for him to see how management could kind of like obviate those kinds of issues because he just didn't even think that those could be issues or couldn't wasn't aware that that something like that might come up and it sort of blinded him also to certain people around him who uh, probably did not have the best of intentions so you know that's frankly why a lot of these problems persisted longer than they probably needed to and also frankly just because he's a conflict averse person and so since he really had the power to kind of set things right but he was conflict averse things just ended up dragging on and on yeah, I mean, I got the impression that there were an awful lot of really kind of creative, unusual people involved in the creation of this new company and product and way of thinking about cryptocurrency and the blockchain, but that also maybe some of these tensions arose from these kind of fundamental kind of philosophical perspectives they had about what they were trying to do, why they were trying to do it. And also kind of what they wanted to see the project look like. Is that a fair kind of reading of what you were getting at in the book? Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, people definitely did have different visions for what Ethereum should be. But in some instances, at least, I do think some of that was self-motivated. You know, they kind of uh, felt 
oh, if we were to structure it this other way, then I might make off better in terms of my own financial gain. Um, so, you know, the the kind of more technology focused people who maybe, I don't, I don't know, ideological probably isn't quite the right word, but the ones who, yeah, were the true developers who kind of like, understood that and like especially if they were kind of developers that were interested in open source development they really had an opinion about different ways to develop the technology like closed source versus open source and they really just felt like certain things are going to be better for the world and the community and so they kind of had a stronger opinion about like how to develop it in a way that was like for the greater good rather than uh for like yeah business interests or a corporation do you think that was important to the long-term success of Ethereum or, you know, the sort of quasi non, the nonprofit element of it was more just a, a function of the interests and desires of the people who are, who are running it? I would say so. I mean, even now, if you, it like, so my book ends in 2018, but there was recently a new report on the developer ecosystems in blockchain and, for Ethereum, it's far and away the largest developer ecosystem and also still, I think it's the fastest growing still. I mean, 20% of all new developers that come to crypto work with Ethereum, which like there's no other blockchain that comes even close to that. So, you know, uh, this kind of, it, 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 you could only do that if it were this big open source decentralized project the way it is. And granted, of course, these other blockchains are as well, but uh, just the fact that, like I said, the design space is completely open in Ethereum, unlike Bitcoin, which is pretty restricted, you know, more toward that payments mode. And I mean, of course, you can build additional layers. I just think developers find it more challenging to work with. Um, but since Ethereum was built with that in mind, I think that's why we just see like tons of developers just going in. And frankly, because it is the first mover in that smart contract space, that's another reason I think why people gravitate toward it. So in your book, you describe a few kind of crisis moments in the development of Ethereum, in particular, the creation of this giant DAO, which leads to some pretty difficult, dicey circumstances. I wonder if you could just like give a kind of a potted version of what that was. And, you know, do you think it was like an existential crisis for Ethereum that they avoided or something that they had sort of like they knew they were going to be able to fix it or not? Oh, gosh. So first of all, just because I don't know who your listenership is, but uh, DAO stands for Decentralized Autonomous Organization. And it was this smart contract on Ethereum that was designed basically to be like a decentralized venture fund. The creators would not describe it that way, but that's how, at least how the general community thought of it as. And um, basically what that meant was the smart contract fundraised and then uh, people would be able to submit proposals. And then if the community liked them, they would vote to give them funding. And if they didn't like them, they would vote against giving them funding. And then um, the contractors could, you know, give some part of the profits or whatever to the DAO. And then the DAO token holders would receive those profits. So this w ended up being the largest crowdfunding in history, which is pretty amazing because they were collecting money in Ether. And in 2015, uh, 2016, it was not, you know, all the kind of like nifty tools we have to send money, uh, sorry, crypto tokens around nowadays. It definitely did not exist back then. So it's like a, quite a feat that they managed with this. And it actually ended up having 
14.6% of all Ether in this one smart contract, like more than the Ethereum Foundation had. And then within a few weeks after the final fundraising, uh, 31% of it got hacked. And um, of course, I mean, this was, this was the only existential crisis actually in Ethereum's history. And you know, at that time, like right now, of course, on Ethereum, we have DAOs, we have NFTs, we have DeFi, we have, uh, you know, previously there were all these initial coin offerings. Like now the Ethereum ecosystem is huge. But at the time, this was, Ethereum hadn't even been a year old, or wasn't even a year old at that time. And this was basically the main event on Ethereum. And so for this to have been hacked, it was, it just set in motion all this pandemonium a lot of people, you know, were losing a lot of money. And yeah, it ended up resulting in Ethereum deciding to hard fork, which is how we now have Ethereum Classic, which I like to call its evil twin, um, which is basically the original blockchain where the DAO lives on and, you know, they didn't try to uh, change anything that happened. But on Ethereum, which is the fork, you know, they basically did what's called an irregular state change, which sort of like, uh, just moved all the money that was in the DAO or th that remained in the DAO to uh, what they called the withdrawal contract where people could send in their DAO tokens and then receive their Ether back. And so it's sort of just like, it's like, we're just going to pretend like we never did this and you, you'll just all get your money back. <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. Well, so I got to ask, right? I mean, today, one of the main things things that people think about in connection with Ethereum is NFTs or non-fungible tokens. Like, was that something that anyone had in mind when the kind of Ethereum concept was created? And, you know, to the extent that you kind of looked into that while you were reporting on your book, sort of like, were people surprised by that development? Did they see it coming? Sort of like, how is that sort of how does where we are now connect to the story that you're telling in the book here? At the very end of my book, uh, CryptoKitties gets introduced. And I think I actually only devoted a paragraph or something to it. Um, maybe not even. And hilariously, so CryptoKitties, by the way, were the first, well, they weren't, so they weren't the first NFTs on Ethereum, but they were the first um, that became popular. And I'm wondering, I think they might have been the first that used the ERC-721 token standard, which is this the original token standard for NFTs. Like before then, all the NFTs that had been created before were like kind of made from scratch, like not in this standard format. Um, and hilariously, so I had a bunch of friends of mine read the book uh, or a draft of it to give me their input. And I um, I chose all people who don't really know anything about crypto. In fact, I think none of them knew a single thing about it. And, um, one of my friends, when I asked her later, kind of for her, you know, uh, response, she was just like, Oh my God, this crypto kitties thing. Like she was just like, that is so crazy. And like I said, it wasn't even like, it was either one paragraph or like less. And to her, that was like what stuck in her head is just being the, you know, most bizarre thing. And yes, now it's like a huge phenomenon. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So, I mean, you know, it was definitely something that was kind of like in the zeitgeist at the time, but it was nowhere near as big as now. Yeah. And that was amazing for me because like reading the book in the context of today, I felt like it gave me such a much richer understanding of sort of the history of 
the Ethereum blockchain and sort of like where it came from and, and how that informs sort of the way we understand how it's being used today and sort of the, you know, what's different about it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. But I think the other thing that's fascinating to me is just, you know, at that time, the main thing everybody was doing was these ICOs, these initial coin offerings to raise money. And now the space, you know, nobody really does that anymore. It's like a totally different thing. And now it's, you know, uh, NFTs are really big and DeFi is really big and DAOs are really big. And okay, of aside from the DAO, um, <laughs> like none of those things were really things back then. And so it's just, it just goes to show how creative you can get when it comes to this kind of like open-ended platform. Mm. Well, so Laura, for listeners who want to pick up your book and read it, which I strongly encourage them to do, um, when is it going to be available and, and where can people find it? It comes out February 22nd. And you can actually pre-order your copies now, and they're available pretty much on any bookstore, or you can also go to bit.ly slash Cryptopians, which is B-I-T dot L-Y slash C-R-Y-P-T-O-P-I-A-N-S. And there you can find the links to all the different retailers that sell the hardcover, the ebook, and the audiobook. And by the way, I narrate the audiobook. Amazing. I'm going to have to listen to it. Uh, Laura, thank you so much for coming on the show to talk about your book. I totally loved it. And it was great to hear about it directly from you. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. I really have enjoyed this conversation. 